Thanks for being here with us this evening. My name is Kevin Conover. I'm your host. You're on KPraise, 1210 AM down here in Southern California, Educate for Life Radio. My website is educateforlife.org. And we've got all kinds of resources on the website. If you're trying to train your kids up in the way that they should go, if you want to teach them more about all the different uh, uh, issues that are going to be coming their way as they head out into the world, it's a great website to be able to discuss things like creation and evolution and how do we know the Bible is true, who put the Bible together, and all the different issues that are um, coming up. And uh, they're sure if, if they aren't already dealing with, they, they certainly will be dealing with. Um, this evening, we're going to be talking about one of those subjects that's relevant to these issues. Um, we're going to be talking about um, a post-truth world. What is uh, things like moral rev- relativism or postmodernism? Um, before we get into that, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Gen Z and uh, millennials. Uh, I just uh, did a little bit of research to look into this. I thought this was um, really interesting, some of the stats. And if you're a stats person, um, I love stats personally, but if you're a stats person, you'll find this pretty interesting. According to George Barna, the director of research for the Cultural Research Center at, at Arizona Christian University, 24 out of every 25 millennials do not possess a biblical worldview. 65% of millennials say they are Christian. 25% of millennials have a positive view of atheism. Barna said this, millennials are struggling to make sense of this world and the next. They live in the crosshairs of cultural influencers whose extreme message about independence and self-reliance conflict with the biblical themes of Christ dependence and personal spiritual sufficiency. According to a 2019 Arizona Christian University study, more than 40% of millennials in the United States do not know, believe, or care if God exists. Millennials are more likely to define success in life as happiness, personal freedom, or productivity without oppression. And um, so that just gives you a taste of what we're dealing with. I didn't touch too much on Gen Z, but uh, my guest this evening is Abdu Murray. And Abdu uh, is a former Muslim. He's a speaker and author. His ministry is Embrace the Truth Ministries, embracethetruth.org, and um, recently came out with um, uh, his most recent book, Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. Uh, Abdu, thanks so much for being on the program this evening. It's wonderful to be with you, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And um, I mean, you're passionate about all the things I'm passionate about. I'm so excited to talk to you and, and hear what your perspective, you're kind of on the cutting edge of this stuff. And, and um, you know, you wrote this book, Saving Truth. Um, and I, I, what I really like about your subtitle is that it says finding meaning and clarity in a post-truth world. Um, would you say that's one of the biggest struggles that the, the culture is dealing with is just finding meaning right now? I do think that's one of the biggest uh, struggles. In fact, I, I really appreciate that you picked that up and from, from the title um, because um, I think that one of the things that's important for us to understand is that um, everyone, regardless of their worldview, you know, you, you rattled off some alarming statistics about millennials and, and for Gen Z, some of those are even more dire. Um, <clears throat> and one of the things that seems to, it seems to suggest is if they don't know or don't care that God exists, for example, then they don't really care about things like meaning in life. Mm-hmm. And some would say that, but for the most part, people are searching for meaning. Even those who think that we're all here by accident, they're looking to inject their own sense of meaning into the world, even if it's a private subjective meaning. So people are really looking for this idea 
of meaning and is there any real place where we can find it? Mm. But the problem is that in a post-truth world, in a world where we're all sort of the masters of our own universes, we're actually finding that meanings are fleeting. They change sometimes from year to year, sometimes from week to week, and then sometimes from moment to moment. And then we yield ourselves to a despair because one of the things that's, that's, point, that, that's part of the research as well is that not just because of COVID, but because of a lot of reasons, young people, I mean people in single digit ages into their tweens and into their teens are experiencing, and we're experiencing it even before COVID, the highest levels of stress and anxiety mm. that they had experienced in decades. Part of that's due to the fact that we're, we care more about this uh, and we're measuring it more, but a big part of it, I think, is because we're telling them that they can be the masters of their own destiny. At an early age, they can decide who and what they are at age eight. Now look, I'm gonna be 49 soon, which means I'm a child of the 70s, but I'm actually grew, I grew up in the 80s. And we had plenty of anxiety growing up in the 80s because we had what was sort of known as a Cold War neurosis or Cold mm. War um, uh, anxiety. You know, we were worried that the US and the USSR were gonna turn the Cold War nuclear hot with a push of a button. And so yeah. kids were waking up in the middle of the night screaming, thinking the world was gonna to end tomorrow. Um, but we got over that. Um, only to find ourselves now from an anxiety where we thought there was a world spinning out of control to now an anxiety based on the fact that we're told we can control everything. And that is a scary thought for a young person uh, because what you're told is you can decide and you should decide who you are and we're going to enforce it for you um, and even tell you who you are. And somehow that gives you a sense of meaning and purpose. And so we meander through life in very, very shocking ways only to find that our desire for autonomy, our desire for control has left us in a world where we have to formulate meanings based on what we're against or what we're for or um, what new sort of identities we can create for ourselves only to find ourselves feeling empty because those things shift. And we yeah. don't have a, a common uh, belief that things are solid anymore. Mm -hmm. We like the shift, but we're now we're living in the grisly aftermath of that shift. That's really interesting. Um, can you explain that a little bit further? You said you said that um, kids are being told that they can um, control everything, and you said that this is not a good thing um, that they're being told this. Whereas yeah. a lot of people, you know, their, their first thought is, yeah, hey, I want to be able to control everything. And, and I'm glad that I can. I have that power. But you're saying that's actually not a good thing. Can you explain that a little bit further? Sure, absolutely. You know, it's interesting when you look at the, the, the values, um, you can tell the health of a culture by how it expresses its chief values and how those values begin to morph and change over time. So if you were to say, what is the chief value of the American experience or even the Western experience, the Western mm. world? Oftentimes we hear the word freedom being used here is that freedom is what defines the Western world as opposed to oppression and uh, slavish um, obedience to tradition. We are free thinkers. We break boundaries. We bust through. Go West, young man, as it were. Yeah, you see um, this. You see this even on. Um, I thought this was really interesting. I was reading the studies on this. It was talking about how many people use TikTok. It's unbelievable the amount of people mm -hmm. that use TikTok. And what what I've noticed is that there's a really common theme of you can do it independence break like you're saying breakthrough push through is that what you're talking about when when you're voicing that 
I, I am. And this is an expression of the issue, though. So the issue is this, is we talk about freedom and freedom is a good thing when it's properly understood. But we've actually used the word freedom often enough, but we've actually stopped talking about the actual meaning of it. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is this, is that we have defined freedom as the ability to do what you want, whenever you want, in whatever way you want, uh, at any time you want. And so it's absolute unlimited ability to do whatever you want and define mm. reality as, as, as you see fit. Now that sounds like freedom, but the reality is, as uh, Isaiah Berlin and other scholars have pointed out, that actually isn't freedom at all. That's autonomy. And that's a different thing altogether. So freedom has two facets to it. Uh, Os Guinness points this out. Isaiah Berlin points this out. A bunch of people point this out. Freedom has two facets to it. There's what's called negative freedom, which isn't a bad thing. It just means freedom from restriction. Mm. And that's Mm. what we talk about all the time. I don't want anybody to restrict my expression of my sexuality, of my opinions, of my religion, and all these things. And and a lot of that's good. The problem is, is that it's not tempered against the freedom for, the positive freedom. So negative freedom is the freedom from restriction. Positive freedom is the freedom to do that which is the greater good. And that means that we use our freedoms, not just to do whatever we want, but to work for the common good, to work for the ideal. And we used to have an idea about what that actually might be. And so, so so why would somebody, I mean, I'm just, you know, uh, pushing back a little bit here, just uh, why wouldn't somebody say, everybody has the freedom to do the greater good. They have that freedom as much as they have the freedom to do whatever they want. They, they, you know, how would you respond to somebody that said, we do have that freedom to do the greater good? What do you mean? What's we holding do us have back? The, yeah, we do have the freedom to do that. But my point is, is that when we talk about freedom, we've actually lost that. We've, it's, it's not that we don't have it. It's that we don't talk about it and we don't actually define freedom that way. Mm. So instead we look at negative freedom only, which means that we're talking about a one-sided coin or a one-ended stick, which of course is nonsense, mm. but negative freedom by itself without a reference to a objective moral good mm. isn't really freedom. It's autonomy. And autonomy is an interesting word because it comes from two Greek root words, Autos meaning self and namos meaning law. So when you're autonomous, you are a law unto yourself. So here's the danger, Kevin. This is where I think is the danger. Is wow. that if I'm a law unto myself, I'm, I'm the master of my universe. I am the ruler of my domain. And in a post-truth world, preferences and feelings matter more than facts and truth. Hmm. Facts and truth exist, but they just don't matter as much as my preferences and my feelings. So here's the, here's the issue. If I'm a law unto myself, if I'm the master of my own domain, the king of my castle, and someone else happens to be the master of their domain and the king of their castle, and they're autonomous, and their preferences and their feelings matter more than the facts and the truth, but so do my preferences and my Mm. feelings. Mm. When we collide, when my autonomous kingdom collides with your autonomous kingdom, and truth is no longer the arbiter between us, who Mm. wins? It's not the one with truth. It's the one with power. Oh, that's scary. And so the irony is this. If we don't love truth as being the determiner of who's right and who's wrong, what ends up happening is in our quest for ultimate freedom, which is autonomy, someone gets enslaved. And that is tragically ironic. Wow, that is powerful. 
That is, that is a message that more people need to know. <laughs> My gosh, <laughs> uh, because that's exactly where we're at. I mean, that's exactly what's happening in our culture today. Um, we have people that have decided. Um, well, we were well on our way to tr to truth doesn't exist, and now we see it playing out that people have decided. I will win this battle of power at any cost. Uh, it doesn't matter. And, and, and we can see that the evil, the vehemence or the, the just, um, just plain, I don't know how to say it other than to say it's evil, the way people treat one another in their attempt to, to have their will win out. Like you're saying, it yeah. turns into tyranny. Yeah, it does. And you know what's interesting about this is that we have to ever be vigilant. I have to be vigilant because I'm not perfect at this. And everyone has to be vigilant at this because as human beings, you know, it's interesting, this quest for autonomy over freedom is not a new thing. This is actually mm. as old as human beings. When you think of the Adam and Eve story, this is why I love the scripture so much because the scripture actually teaches us about the human condition long before our social scientists, our sociologists, and our psychologists have learned about it. It tells us about this long ago. So you look at the Garden of Eden story. Adam and Eve are made to be in relationship with God, and they walk and talk with God in the cool of the day, Genesis says. Now, what's interesting about this is that God gave them one command. There's a tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that is the one tree in the garden, the fruit of which you shall not eat. That's the only command. That's it. Everything else is absolutely theirs. They have free reign over everything. And who knows how long it was that they lived with this rule and it never bothered them. It never tempted them. But along mm. comes the serpent and the serpent says, did God really say? And he messes with their minds a little bit. And what happens? Adam and Eve respond in a way that's really interesting. They don't say, God said, don't eat of it. They don't say that. What they say is God said, don't even touch it. Well, he never said that. Mm. They added to God's word. In other words, they became the God of God. And that's when Satan knew he had them. He's like, mm. ah, they are adding, they do want this godlike status and this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When I say you will become like God, they will suddenly want it. And what happens is he says, God knows that the day you eat of it, you will not die, but you will become like him. And that's when, despite however many years it took for them not to be tempted by it, suddenly when Satan says you will be like God, their quest for autonomy, their human nature, their human desire for autonomy over the truth won out. And that's mm. when they fell. So what I'm saying here is that the post-truth tree we're living under right now was planted in the garden in the very, with the very first people. And so what we have to do is check ourselves, whether you're a Christian or you're a non-Christian, check. I have to do this daily. And I have failed at this at times where I have failed or others have failed and many have failed to see, is my preferences ruling the day or is truth ruling the day? And because the old man's still there and claws back sometimes, mm -hmm. um, we lose. But if the Lord is with us, if that ever-present, unmoving constant of truth is with us, he will bring us back and say that, no, truth matters more than preferences. And that's how I think we can overcome a, a tendency to want our feelings and our preferences to rule over us. So give me an example there um, of of what you mean when you say, uh, you know, that, that, and it's interesting what you said, you said both Christians and non-Christians have to check themselves. Um, mm -hmm. Would a, would a non-Christian even want to check themselves regarding uh, uh, determining whether this is a preference 
uh, that they're they're seeking or whether it's truth that they're seeking, why why would they want to to know that or or, or well, check themselves it, on that? You know, it's interesting you say you ask that question because I've seen it. You know, I've had uh, debates and dialogues with people all the time who 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 don't believe, uh, who aren't believers, but who do say, I want the truth and I want to, you know, find out what the truth actually is. And, you know, the Bible specifically talks to us about that people don't believe, disbelieve just because there isn't um, uh, any uh, truth out there or a lack of evidence. It's actually suppression of the evidence, which requires a certain level of knowledge that there actually is some truth out there. But I've seen people um, who aren't believers who have looked for and even stood for the truth at times as well. I mean, we have to remember there were, it wasn't just Christians who led the abolitionist movement. It wasn't mm-hmm. just Christians who led the women's suffrage movement. There were non-Christians who were involved in that as well. And this shouldn't surprise us because the Bible specifically says that God has actually written a law into the hearts of human beings. Yes, we are sinners. Yes, there is no hope apart from Christ and we need to be awakened by the spirit that God needs to move in our lives. But that doesn't mean there is not any truth in some people. So, oh, yeah. I, I, I find it surprising sometimes that I agree with Bill Maher. And I'm like, what in the world? What, how did that yeah. happen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it does, in fact, happen, doesn't it? Yeah. And, well, um, it's weird because it, it seems like um, as the left is getting crazier and crazier, um, you see people coming out going, whoa, 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 wait a second. I didn't I made no commitment to this crazy train. And so right. you have people starting to reject it that you were like, wait a second, I thought you were on the other side. What's going on? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And you know, this is interesting because in, in Saving Truth, I have a whole chapter. I think it's the second chapter of the book, actually, where I talk about the way the church has actually contributed to a post-truth culture as well. So you have people who don't believe and who might be far left politically, and you have people who do believe, or at least maybe say they believe, mm-hmm. but and even believe that they believe, but really political ideology matters more. Yeah. Um, and so you have in the church, you have two competing atmospheres. You have those who want to make the gospel message and the Bible and some of its sort of more harsh passages or its more um, uh, defining uh, culturally limiting passages or even personally limiting passages. They want to make it more palatable. Mm. So a good example is uh, Christians, well-meaning Christians who might say things like, Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. And so we aren't to be judgmental. We can't judge anybody's lifestyle. We can't, we can't judge anybody's choices. We certainly can't proclaim truth in certain ways. But of course, the problem there is that when you want to make the gospel so palatable to people that they end up saying, oh, I'll believe that. Yeah. They don't really believe the gospel anymore. Or it's so easy that there's no conviction. And so what ends up happening is you take the scripture out of context because your preference is that everyone gets along, that no mm. one actually fights And what you've done is you've elevated that preference over the truth. And what happens in this particular instance, for example, Jesus does say, do not judge, uh, judge not that you be not judged for when you judge. And he goes on to talk about how you should actually judge. Jesus is not talking about no judgment. He's talking about hypocritical judgment. Um, So I think that when we compromise the scriptures, we're often looking at those people who are sort of harsh and, and stick to the scriptures and, and look at a more literal or a more, I wouldn't say literal, literal is sometimes a bad, uh, uh, inconvenient word here. Um, I would say a more um, obvious reading of the text. Um, they'll say, oh, they're being too harsh mm. and they're being post-truth. But the reality is we have to, before we take the post-truth speck out of the culture's eye, we have to get the post-truth log out of our own. But then there are people on the pendular swing the other way. There are those Christians who I think want 
uh, and believe in the scriptures and they want the, the, the truth to be out there, but they don't speak the truth in love necessarily. And so they take some of those uh, more culturally limiting things and they bash people over the head with it. And so they don't show them the beauty of the gospel that comes along with the boundaries that truth creates. Mm. And so I think that's where the church sometimes contributes to a post-truth culture as well, is that we elevate our preferences, whether it's to be liked or to be judgmental over what the truth is, which is the truth in love. And so yes. I think that that's very important for us to check as well. Yes. And Jesus is that perfect, incredible balance. Um, it's mm -hmm. just stunning to see Christ and the way he talked and everything. And you just mm. look at it and go, this guy, this is no normal person here. <laughs> um, well, but you know, it's, you know, it's fascinating when you, when you look at the way he even discusses truth in the first place, you John 8, 30, uh, 8, 36. And, you know, we, we have um, uh, the scripture verse that many of us know, and mm. even non-Christians know it when he, when he says, uh, you know, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. But it's interesting when you look at the context here in the full breadth of scripture. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, this is interesting because he's talking to people who believe in him. Mm -hmm. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know knowledge, not feel, but know the truth mm -hmm. and the truth will set you free. Then they go on and they make an interesting statement. They say, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How can you say the truth will set you free? That's fascinating because they just said, we're children of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. Are you kidding me? You were enslaved to Egypt for 400 years. Yeah. <laughs> and and so it's, it's interesting how, how, how quickly truth gets put on the back burner when you're about to, you want to want, want to debate or you want to win, someone, uh, win against someone in, in an argument. And then yeah. Jesus lovingly says, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is the slave to sin. The slave does not abide in the house forever, but the son abides, abides in the house forever. So, he says, so if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Now, this is interesting. Jesus says, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then he says, the son will set you free. That means if the truth sets you free and the son sets you free, the son is the truth. Mm. He's claiming to be the very truth that you just said, Kevin, is one who there is no one like this one who yeah. lived both truth and love at the same time. Yeah, I always, I believe it's in Matthew where he says, I, I, I share this with my students frequently because it, it's kind of a, kind of sets you back. It's very unexpected where Jesus says, um, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. And uh, it's, and then he, and then you're kind of like, wait, what? This is Jesus talking. And then that's the emphasis on truth. Um, mm -hmm. Do you believe that that's where he's saying that, um, you know, truth rises above our preference? Uh, that's yeah. what it seems to me to be the case. Well, I, you know, it's, it's interesting is the way the poetry works here of the, of the scriptures is so Jesus says in John chapter eight, that he is the truth that sets us free. Mm. But then he says, do not think that I am come to being peace, but, but a sword. Of course, mm. later on in John chapter uh, 14, where he says, peace, I leave with you, not as the world gives, but peace I give to you. Um, it's interesting when you all this weaves together. And this is one of the, the beauties of scripture as well, is that when Jesus says, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword because people will divide their preferences will matter more than the truth. And what mm. was the chief issue? What was the chief issue that was facing the disciples? And then of course, the fledgling church uh, going forward, who do men say that he is? And so he knew that what would divide people is who Jesus claimed to mm. be. And so you see families divide over it. You see, just ask anybody from a different religious system 
who converted to Christianity, how divisive, how much of a sword Jesus can be uh, in that moment. Um, politically, we get divided so easily, but Jesus is not, uh, it's not the politics that divide us is what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that truth divides because truth by definition excludes error. It excludes mm. falsehood. It, ex it, ex it excludes that which is untrue. And so truth is not inclusive. Truth is exclusive, but it is inclusive in its invitation. It's not inclusive in its, in its, in its substance, but it's inclusive in its invitation. Truth excludes error, but it invites everyone to itself. That's awesome. Um, if you're just tuning in, my guest today is Abdu Murray, abdumurray.com or embracethetruth.org. And uh, his most recent book, Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World. Um, so uh, Abdu, as far as that's concerned, you know, you, you titled your book, Saving Truth. Um, so, uh, you know, how does one save truth in, in a culture that has decided that um, I was reading about uh, C.S. Lewis called this perspectivism, um, the idea that each person's individual viewpoint becomes, like you said in the beginning of our discussion, becomes the dominant um, dictator of truth. And that's why we got into this situation where people are saying, hey, you've got to call somebody by the personal pronoun of their choice because that's their reality. Um, and, and you'll hear people say, uh, I think they say... Uh, uh, their perspective is the truth because it's filtered through their mind and you have to respect their truth. And obviously you're talking about objective truth. How do we save truth in a culture that's decided that, Hey, personal, personal, like you said, autonomy or personal preference is the highest good. Well, boy, you've, you've, you've hit the question as to why I wrote this book in the first place is because, you know, it's interesting, uh, Kevin, when you think about the postmodern mindset, when you think of the postmodernism that arose in the 50s and the 60s and gained some traction in the 70s, really started to pull in the, eight, the 90s and even in the early 2000s, only to find that it started to die a death. And it's interesting because we often think that we're in a postmodern culture. We're not. We're in a post-truth culture. Mm -hmm. And postmodernism died. Um, but it's interesting that you know we have different theories that are out there now that are living on the backs of post-postmodernism. But here's why I say that. Postmodernism was the belief that truth is relative and that all claims to, to, to have the absolute or objective truth were merely power moves. It's those who have power would, would, would foist an objective truth on someone else in order to gain power over them or to maintain their power. And this so- is like CR, This is like CRT, right? Yeah, for critical theory, the original critical theory was based on this idea of, um, of uh, dichotomies, of oppressors and oppression, but also of this idea of those who have the power will use it to dominate over those who don't have it. And so, make, their um, own, make their own historical truth up. Right, exactly. And so, yeah. in order to, and, and so the thinking was, in order to avoid the conflict, in order to avoid the inequities and the, the, empower, the power imbalances, what we need to do is get rid of all ideas that truth is objective. Mm. Because if we get rid of tr objective truth, then people can't use it to oppress other people. It sounds very well-meaning, but mm. it is quite wrong-headed. 
Yeah. Um, and what ended, up hap- what ended up happening was, was the obvious things. You know, when someone says, of course, and you, I, I know you know this, Kevin, and I'm, I'm sure your listeners and your viewers do as well, if they probably listen to you for five minutes, they probably know this. When <laughs> someone says there is no such thing as objective truth, that statement itself has to be objectively true. Otherwise, they wouldn't have said it. And if it is true, then, of course, objective truth does exist. And the person has sawn off the very limb on which they're sitting. Yeah. So. That kind of argumentation has won the day. Oftentimes, postmodernists and people who are relativists will see the issue and they'll see the problem and they'll begin to be talked out of it. The problem is worse now, however. We're no longer in a postmodern world. That died. What rose from the ashes of postmodernism is post-truth. And what post-truth is, remember, this is very important. Post-truth is not the idea that truth doesn't matter, but my feelings do. No. What it is, is that truth matters, but my preferences and my feelings matter more. Hmm. Why that's more dangerous Hmm. is because if you say, here are a bunch of facts and figures and statistics and things that you need to look at, they'll say, that's wonderful, but I don't care. Hmm. So they don't deny that it exists. They just deny that they care. Now the question becomes, how do you get someone to care about truth again? Hmm. And I think think the answer is this. you have to show the concept. There's two ways um, and they have to work together because if they don't, if they only work in tandem, uh, sorry, if they only work uh, isolation, they won't work. The one is to show that the consequences of a post-truth world are unlivable. And then the second one is the hope of a truth-filled world. I think fueled by the gospel is not only livable, but hope-filled and hopeful. So if you take the despair that comes from a post-truth world and couple it with, the, with the, the joy of hope, even in an imperfect world of the gospel, that's when I think you can get them to see that, that they, they should care. And so several consequences arise, um, and we can talk about those, but the first, the first consequence of a post-truth world is that we lose all sense of wisdom. Uh, the second one is that we lose all sense of accountability. And the third one is that we lose all sense of human value in a post-truth world. And if you can show that People who actually care, and most people do care, even people who are steeped in a post-truth mindset, they care about wisdom, they care about accountability, and they care about human value. They, they care about these things. Um, yeah, it's almost as if, go ahead. I was going to say, it's almost as if, um, because I that's been my experience, is that when I actually have the opportunity to have these dialogues with somebody who's, who's thinking in, in a post-truth world, and maybe they're not a believer, they it's not as if they don't have feelings. It's not as if they don't care about people. It's almost as if their mind has just been so um, inundated with wrong thinking that they've never just even had the opportunity to have that discussion with somebody that can actually articulate it in a way that, that makes sense. Is that, is that your experience or? That's been my overwhelming experience is that most people who think in a post-truth way or who hold to certain views that I think are antithetical to an, to, to an objective truth of the gospel, aren't doing it with a, with a, with a, with a um, sort of a scowly sort of Hitlery look on, it, on, on their face. Mm. They're, they're, they actually think that, that they're propagating a better good and a greater yeah. good. So I, I think about it, here's an example of what I'll give you exactly to your point about someone who I think really did have a well-meaning mindset and who had a ton of tenderness towards mm. people who they didn't even agree with. So I was, uh, a number of years ago, I was giving my testimony of my, my conversion from Islam to Christianity, specifically Islam to Christ, um, to, a, to, a, to a, a men's breakfast. 
it was a fairly large um, uh, crowd for that kind of an event. And uh, there was a guy sitting in the front row who was listening and he was taking, you know, really, really copious notes. And I knew this would be the first guy to talk to me, or at least the yeah. main guy to talk to me as soon as yeah. I was done speaking. Yeah. And so what I do when I talk about my conversion is that I don't talk about how false Islam is. I talk about how true the gospel is. Mm. I didn't become a Christian because that was false. I became a Christian because this is true. Now, by implication, everything else is false, but it was the light of the gospel that attracted me, not the, dark, not, not the darkness of something else that repelled me. Mm. Um, so um, what, he, what he got out of it essentially was that I became a Christian, but I thought Islam could be equally true. Well, that's not the point I was making. But he said, hey, I appreciate that. I'm like, well, we didn't quite get the point I was making. But he said, hey, can I show you something? Which whenever you're, if you're a public speaker and someone says, hey, can I show you something? Yeah. Uh, it's it's going to be a long conversation. Yeah. Um, and that's okay. That's good. Uh, so he had a diagram that he had drawn. And in the middle of the diagram was a, was a, was a capital T, like in bold, like he scribbled it really thick. And he had a circle around it. And he says, this is objective truth. And there is such a thing. Good, great. You and I are on the same page. Then he had all these little lowercase T's that were surrounding it and arrows that were pointing towards the capital T. And he says, all of us have imperfect versions of the truth. And I said, well, put a pin in that one for a minute. He says, yeah. but none of us knows all the truth. I said, so far, you and I agree on that. None of us knows all the truth, because if I knew all the truth, then I would know everything. And if I knew everything, I would be God. So, so far, we're on an equal footing, neither you nor I are God. That's a good place to start. He said, but we all have imperfect versions of the truth. I said, everybody? He said, everybody. All people do. I'm like, okay. So I rattled off some names. I said, Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, Idi Amin. I can go on. Um, are you really telling me that these men all had imperfect versions of the truth. And he, this is his words. These are his words exactly. He said, I can tell you, I don't prefer their versions of the truth, but because my version is imperfect, I can't judge their version. Oh, yikes. Um, right. So what ended up happening was in the course of the back and forth, I asked him a question. Uh, I said, are you telling me that you can't disagree with anybody? He said, that's right. I can't disagree with anybody. I said, sure you can. He said, no, I can't. I said, you just did it. <laughs> he just did it. That's um, funny. He, disagree he disagreed with me. Now, I wasn't trying to do a logic trap to make him look like a fool because he was yeah. a very thoughtful guy, by the way. Yeah. My point was, my point to him was his God-given wisdom was sacrifice on the altar of his preference that everyone gets along and no one fights with anybody. Mm. That's a good thing. That's a noble thing. But the problem was he sacrificed wisdom on the altar of that desire. Mm. And that's what I think happens is oftentimes when we talk about things that we care about, whether it's, you know, sexual freedom or whatever it might be, we often have this burden in our hearts for people and we should, but we sacrifice reason and truth on the altar of our desires. And we have to be careful of that. All of us do. Christians do. Non-Christians do. We all do because we're all capable of doing that kind of a thing. Mm. We have our own personal uh, experiences and biases that, uh, you know, that are so often very, very difficult to see. Um, mm. And that's why humility is so important, right? That uh, yeah. we, we listen and allow somebody to speak into our life um, to the blind mm. spots we may not see. Uh, that's yeah. pretty powerful. Uh, well, um, you know, I was looking more at 
the the Gen Z and the uh, millennial situation. I wanted to read these stats too. I thought this was really interesting. Um, it says here, this is about Gen Z. Um, here it is. Gen Z is more likely than any other generation to want an activist government with 70% saying the government should do more to solve problems as opposed to the government doing too many things better left to businesses and individuals. They then went on to say, 48% of Gen Z says same-sex marriage is a good thing for society, while 15% say it is a bad thing. 47% of millennials say same-sex marriage. Uh, let me skip that one. 35% of Gen Z members personally know someone who prefers that others refer to them using gender-neutral pro pronouns. And then um, it says 45% of 13 to 17-year-olds say they use the internet almost constantly. Um, you know, when you're dealing with this whole thing, from a practical standpoint, and we're looking at all these real, these are real life issues. They're, I mean, the, the whole thing with Gen Z deciding that 70% saying the government should do uh, more to, to engage. And when you have massive amounts of kids using the internet um, and things like TikTok um, for their information. Uh, and as a, as a uh, administrator and teacher, I see this all the time. It says TikTok has 1 billion monthly active users out of 4.8 billion internet users worldwide. 20% of internet users are monthly active using TikTok. Um, and then 47% of TikTok's active users are between 10 and 29. So when you when we look at this and you're talking about saving truth from a practical perspective, Abdu, how does how does the, what does this mean for the everyday Christian for the lay Christian, as we engage the culture, as we do our best to be salt and light, as we're, as we're trying to be um, a, a good and godly influence on the culture. Um, what are your thoughts there as far as that's concerned? Yeah. Um, that's, and there's a lot to unpack there, but it's such an important question. Um, one of the things that's interesting is despite all the um, uh, sort of uh, given to, to um, preferences and the appeals to emotion that are out there and the sort of sh the bottom shelving of truth over uh, underneath the autonomy of preference is a deep-seated desire within millennials and Gen Z for a, and it's an overused word, but for authenticity. Hmm. Um, so an authenticity presupposes objective truth. It presupposes mm. objective morality, for example. Mm. Um, I remember I was talking with a young man after a, an event, this very, very bright guy, very, very bright kid, far brighter than me at his age, far more learned than I was at his age. But um, he said to me, um, you know, you speak about objective morality as a Christian. He says, but my, I see Christians acting exactly the opposite of that. Um, uh, and of course, um, uh, there are well-known Christians who, uh, despite their words being true, their actions don't always always line up for that for that with that truth. And I've certainly seen quite a bit of that, um, uh, and we all have. Um, but um, he said, "I see this." He's like, "But um, why do we have to be consistent at all? Why, you know, wh what is this? The point of all of this in the first place is that I see all this, um, and people aren't really living like there's an objective truth out there. And I said, well, that's that's what sin's all about. Sin is all about our inability to um, live up to it. It doesn't mean it doesn't exist. It just means that we don't live up to it perfectly. Mm. Um, but it's still there. He says, yeah, but I'm trying to get, I'm trying to force you to see that we don't need objective truth. We can just believe 
that, a that, that objective morality exists, even if it doesn't, because it helps other people. So wait, 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 are you saying we should believe a lie? <laughs> and, that bothered, and that bothered him a lot. Yeah. Because he hadn't thought that far. And he said, wait a minute. And he, he said, well, I guess I am saying that. I'm saying, well, wait a minute. You just asked me to be consistent. You wanted me to be consistent. And yet you're suggesting that people can be criticized for being inconsistent. So if, if you want authenticity, consistency, then what you're presupposing is that I ought to act consistently. And the minute you say I ought to do anything, you are presupposing an objective moral obligation I have to act that way. So no matter how hard you try, whenever you try to foist on me an uh, obligation to be consistent, you're assuming there is an a, a objective morality by which I must live. Mm. So you're actually admitting the case. You know, he saw that and we had a great conversation afterwards. I think that this is the practical world in which we have to live is that, um, and I say this with a certain amount of you know, understanding of the recent past, um, having worked with uh, a ministry where there was a devastating, a devastating um, uh, re revelation about someone's improprieties, um, uh, that here's a truth that's important. The, the, the credibility of the message is always judged by the integrity of the messenger. Mm. And that's not always fair because we're, none of us are perfect. Yeah. Some of us are, you know, and, and I'm not talking about people being imperfect. I'm talking about, you know, really, really sometimes some really bad mistakes or some really bad actions that aren't really excusable as just mistakes. But the integrity of the messenger influences how the credibility of the message is, is looked at. That's why we look to Jesus because he never failed in these mm. areas. He always, he cradled the vulnerable and he empowered the vulnerable, but he also um, didn't just chastise the powerful or the rich. He wanted the rich redeemed. He wanted the rich, the powerful to use their power in a God-given um, uh, way that actually helped all human beings. So this, 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 this culture wants authenticity, which presupposes the very objective morality that they're saying doesn't actually exist, or mm. at least can be molded to their own preferences. But this is also a culture obsessed with the word justice, which is a good word mm. to be obsessed with, but that presupposes an objective morality as well. Um, and so I think that if we challenge people in good conversations, in relationships, if we try to live up to what we believe, we can start to have um, an impact and they'll see it and they'll wanna hear the message that the messengers give. So I think living that way is really important. I think bringing the truth back to not just what the Bible says, but why it says what it says. And mm. I, I realize this is a long answer to an incredibly important question, but I, I, I take a look at some of the hot button issues of the day. Let's take sexuality for an example. Oftentimes when we ask a Bible-believing Christian or we, we, we pit more of a progressive Christian or a Bible-believing sort of conservative Christian or even someone who's not a Christian and says, why can't people just love who they want to love? Um, and that sounds wonderful. It's like we're, we, we, we follow someone who claimed to be the very source of love. Hmm. Why wouldn't we be pro-love? And instead what we find ourselves being is pro-institution, pro-institution of marriage. Well, if you're looking at a, at, at a debate socially, 
and these people are pro-love and these people are pro-institution, who wins? The pro-love people win. Yeah. Because pro-institution sounds cold and unfeeling and, un- mm. and, un- and lack of lacking compassion. Mm. Rather, not just saying the Bible says that sexuality is supposed to be expressed between one man and one woman within the bonds of marriage. That's true. But the question isn't, what does the Bible say? That's clear. The question is, why does the Bible say it? Mm. And it's not because you're a worse sinner than I am, or you're more broken than me. That's why, Kevin, I might get people mad at me for saying this, but that's why I think the words heterosexual and homosexual are incredibly unhelpful. Um, Because heterosexual is considered sexually moral, Mm. when the reality is it's just more sexually normal. There's nothing inherently moral about heterosexuality. I know plenty of heterosexuals who are incredibly sexually immoral. Yeah. Uh, far more than some of the, some, some of my friends who are same-sex attracted and actually act on it. Um, uh, and so what ends up happening is the church doesn't reach out. The church reaches down. Mm. And this is, and I'm getting this from Janelle Williams Paris, is that she's pointing out that oftentimes Christians seem to be reaching down without seeing what's going on in their own lives. Mm. So authenticity and I think explaining why the Bible says what it says, not just what it says, but why it says what it says. Because in the sexuality discussion, if you actually take a look at why the Bible limits, why God limits sexuality to one man, one woman within the bonds of marriage, the beauty begins to blossom. Mm-hmm. Why that's the case begins to blossom. It's yeah. not God is prohibiting certain conduct because he finds it yucky. No, that's not why. He's protecting something sacred because he finds it beautiful. Mm. And he wants that for each one of us. And that's why the Bible says what it says. And you can go on and unpack it. But I think that's what gets people listening. Oh, absolutely. That's so great. Yeah. And that, I mean, from an apologetics perspective, right, from an apologist, I mean, that's really uh, what we're to be doing is to be able to explain in a way that people can understand and go, whoa, that makes so much sense. And I see that God mm-hmm. is loving. This is, like you said, it's a it's because God loves us. Uh, that's really great. Yeah. Um, well, uh, my guest this evening has been Abdu Murray, and um, you can uh, find out more about him, embracethetruth.org. He's also on Facebook. And his most recent book, Saving Truth, Finding Meaning and Clarity in a Post-Truth World, very much needed. Uh, it's a it's a difficult issue, you know, um, to really wrap your mind around. And a lot of people, they're just like, whoa, that's too much. But I just want to encourage you, if you're listening, um, it's worth the time to get to understand it better because it's an issue that's not going away anytime soon. And um, it reminds me of the scripture, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And it seems to me that, that um, American culture and really the world is crying out for what you're talking about, Abdu, is they're crying out for truth. Um, and they, they want that truth, but there aren't that many people that can articulate it in a way that's both loving and at the same time understandable. And so as Christians, we all want to grow in that area. We all, we all want to be more like Jesus and able to communicate well and love well. So uh, thanks so much for being on the program this evening. It's been a, a real big blessing. It's been my pleasure as well. And what an honor. Thanks, Kevin, for having me on. Fantastic. Uh, for those of you uh, that, that uh, were here with us, Um, There's all kinds of stuff you can check out, all kinds of interviews on my website, as well as um, up on social media uh, with experts all over the world. 
uh, really helpful and encouraging to see how God has influenced them and, and changed their lives. And then how God is then using them to change the lives of those around them. And so all kinds of uh, opportunities. We'll be back again next week. Uh, thanks for being with us. And I just hope you have a, uh, that you are blessed and that um, you grow closer to God this upcoming week. Uh, we'll see you next time.